So he upholds it, he maintains it, he keeps it there, he maintains everything. Nothing happens in the universe at any of the reaches of the universe without Jesus knowing. Every little thing. If a comet's going to smash into a planet, Jesus knows about it. And if he doesn't want it to smash into a planet, he diverts it. That's the power of Jesus Christ. That's the man from Nazareth. That's Jesus who got on the cross. That's the power of that man. Do we see him for who he is? He's more than just a mild-mannered, good-natured man that we can identify with. How can a person in a physical body uphold the whole universe? So what sort of a man was this? When he walked, this is the kind of man he is. He walked into villages and everyone who was sick and diseased and lame and etc. Everyone, the blind, the deaf, that everyone who came near him were healed. And the, the Samaritan woman just touched the fringe of his garment. And her faith was just, if I could just touch him, I'll be healed. I know I will because I've seen what he can do. I've heard the reports. This man is God in the flesh. This is God walking. Yeah, that's a powerful God. He didn't ride on horseback and, and rally the Middle East to war. He didn't do that. You know, he's not one of 330 million gods and equal with a cow on the street like Hinduism teaches. He's not that. He's God in the flesh. Power beyond our, un our comprehension. And unless you see that, unless the Spirit convicts you that this is the man that we worship, this is the man that is why we gather, I really believe there could be salvational issues at stake because the Holy Spirit has to reveal this. Because we can't see it in the Word. Or, or when you see it, you won't believe it. You'll look at it and go, no, 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 Jesus can't be God. No, 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 that's not God. God it says God is one. Jesus can't be God. That doesn't say that. And, and who's that the spirit of? That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist will come and try to tell you that Jesus is not God. Try to defame God. So when you meet someone like a Christadelphian, don't assume they're saved because they claim a belief in Jesus Christ. It's a, they, they don't believe in the Jesus Christ we believe in. They believe in a created Jesus. They believe in, like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in, the Archangel Michael is Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus, the Son of God, as God as God is. They don't believe in that God, that Jesus. Very different Jesus. You know, even the New Age, they believe in Jesus. But he's not our Jesus. You know, you could get ten people in the room. One of them's Jesus and there's nine others called Jesus. Which one's Jesus? They're not all Jesus just because they're called Jesus. Just because someone says, I worship Jesus, doesn't mean they worship the Son of God. Amen? Yeah, this is, this is really important. This is why I'm, I'm passionate about it and why I teach on it every now and then. is because I think salvation is at stake. do this sermon mainly because um, I think one, around once a year or something I do a sermon on the deity of Christ 
And it's really important that we do it. We sort of, it was brought up in the Bible study on Wednesday night as well because, um, we, you know, when you read John 1 and it says the Word was with God and the Word was God and then you hear the Word became flesh and dwelt a, a while from, uh, among us and it obviously the Word is Jesus and if he was with God and he was God and he, through him all things were created, we know pretty clearly from that that Jesus is God. Yet there's huge amounts of movements in the world, who knows, there's a lot of movements in the world where they deny the deity of Christ. And it's probably going to be the most attacked doctrine in Christianity in these coming days, is Jesus is not God. The issue I find with that is, is, is how literally does God take the, you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only or his only begotten son that whoever believes in the only begotten son and if begotten means that he is as God as God is then you've got to believe in Jesus as God for salvation right now if God is that literal with us to have that much faith to understand and that we only can understand that by the spirit and without the spirit we cannot truly say that Jesus is Lord, meaning Lord as God, as there's Lord God and there's Lord Jesus and there's God as God is. That you need the Spirit to be able to say that and confess that, right, to be saved. So is it that people that can't confess that don't have the Spirit of God? And this is, this is why I, f I believe this doctrine is critical for us to get a hold of because it's going to be attacked and you guys will more than likely find that there'll be times when you will get attacked in this doctrine. And you want to know how to stand firm in this doctrine, don't you? Because it's, I believe it could be, you know, there could be elements of salvation in it that we have to believe that Jesus is God. I don't have any trouble believing it. Does anyone here? No? But does Scripture say it? Well, we believe the Scripture does say it. Now, I've, I've done a, a number of sermons on it, but before I get to those, let's just go to John 14, 9. John 14, 9, and it says, Philip said, if we go back to 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. So I'm in, and just, I'm in the NIV just quickly. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Like, just show us the Father. He didn't know what he was asking, because if the Father was shown, they would have been disintegrated because you can't look upon the Father and live, really. And, and we know from, and, and going in that same vein, you know, Moses went onto the mountain and saw the back of God. That was all he was allowed to see, he saw the back. And, and that's when he was told, if you look upon the face of God, you will not live. Then within a, a few verses of that, it says that, that Moses used to go into the tabernacle and meet God face to face. So who was he meeting with? He couldn't look upon the face of God and live. Then the next verse, or not many further along, he says he would go into the tabernacle and meet with God face to face. Who was he meeting with? He was having, a, in my opinion, a Christophany. He was meeting Christ. You know, just like Abraham saw the Lord and spoke to him and said, please, you know, if 50 people are down there in Sodom, don't destroy it. You know, there's, there's plenty of evidences that God was manifested in the person of Christ. 
Not meaning he's a creation that could manifest God. He was God, he is God, but he's the personable side of God that we can relate to. Not that we can't relate to the Father. It's just that, you know, uh, well, I can't even think, of, that's not a good analogy. I was going to, no, I won't use that analogy because it'll miss, miss. What I was going to say was, you know, we have power plants, you know, but then we've got these little power points, right? They don't have as many voltage as the power plant. The power plant has all the voltage. And I was going to say it's something like, you know, Jesus Christ is like, the, like that, the part that we can plug into, right? But it's not good to, because Jesus is also that giant power plant, right? Yeah, but anyway, that was an analogy that popped into my head. So I don't want to distract you with it. But John 14, 9, and it says, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, people read that and, oh, no, Jesus isn't God. Well, then that would be blasphemy of the highest order, wouldn't it? Imagine if I stood here and said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. <laughs> you guys would just up and walk out, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? So, yeah, anyone who comes and claims that, anyone who says that sort of thing, can only be one of two things. Either he is God or he's raving mad. <laughs> you know? So he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So he's basically saying, you're looking at him. I am him. But yet, there's a number of groups that don't believe that it says that. But let's go on to this first. I've done four sermons in the past that sort of nearly uh, basically honed this one, one doctrine. And it's, uh, the sermons are called Jesus is God. So you can look them up on YouTube. Or Is Jesus God was another one. Um, the plurality of God, uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. Now that's an interesting one because I go through different you know, Christophanies where Jesus appeared and the plurality of God in the, in the book of Genesis where it says, let us make man in, in our image, in our likeness. And it also says, let us. So it says, let us and our. It uses those plural terms. And God the Father was saying that. Now the Jehovah Witnesses will say, oh, he's talking to the angels. Well, then what they've gone and done is they've given creative powers to angels that are creations of God, which doesn't, equate with scripture angels didn't create us we're not created by angels we are created by god and so when god said let us make man in our image he was talking about like a family a father a son holy spirit one our plural amen so and there's also uh, some really old sermons called christology um, when I, I went through um, ten, 10 parts of Christology and when we covered the deity of Christ, I think it was the first and the second sermon I did there, they're really early ones that they are in three 10-minute parts for one sermon. So check that, check that out as well if you want to get into it. And, and there's a lot of research done for all of these sermons. So hopefully you should, it should be good. We have different groups that don't believe that Jesus is God, yet they claim to be Christian. Anyone here want to name a few before I name a few? Christadelphians is one. They're, they're a group that will not 
will not, no matter how hard you press them with Scripture, will not acknowledge that Jesus is God. What's another one? Well, Mormons, uh, they don't believe that Jesus is the one and only God. They believe that um, Jesus and Satan are brothers, are spiritual brothers, and that Elohim is the, is the father of a number of children that he had, one of them being Jesus, and they believe that Elohim is the son of another God of another galaxy, so that our galaxy has Elohim as the God, but there's other galaxies with other gods, right? So it's a really warped, warped faith. Um, it's make-believe, in my opinion. It does not align with Scripture. They have the Book of Mormon, which teaches all this stuff, and then they have the Bible, but you're not really supposed to refer to the Bible because if the Book of Mormon says something that's not in the Bible, then the Bible is wrong. Um, so Mormonism is, is another thing altogether. Then we have, so we have Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Delphians, um, and all these other groups too, like Christian Science and all that, they all deny the deity of Christ, um, as does all the world religions do not, do not acknowledge. Well, some, a group like Hindus, Hinduisms, Hinduisms, <laughs> Hindus will, will acknowledge that Jesus is a god, but he's also one of 330 million gods. You know, and I can become a god in Hinduism if I ascend through the, the steps of um, Hinduism. So it's, but it does not, our Hindus will not acknowledge that there is only one god who has a son and has the spirit and the three of them are one. They do not uh, um, look to that. Also, um, probably the fastest growing forced religion on the planet at the moment is Islam. And this is what I, uh, I was talking to Anthony about yesterday and I have mentioned in one sermon quite a while back that with Islam, it is the ultimate blasphemy or it is the unforgivable sin of Islam is to say that God has a son. And to me, that's astounding that Islam can actually, uh, that Muhammad, by, in my opinion, the spirit of Satan, would, would bring in a, a, a doctrine which would so strongly uh, cause the Muslims to resist Christianity with all their might. And it's, what's our most unforgivable sin in Christianity? Spirit. Yeah, we don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, do we? Imagine a group come along that are, are called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit group, and they tried to convert us. Could they convert us? We'd be saying, no way we're going near you, because you guys blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. You're on a one-way ticket to hell, and you're not getting out. Right? We wouldn't go there. Now, guess how they look at Christians? You are going to hell, one-way ticket. You're never going to get out. There is no way I'm converting to you because you claim that God the Father has a son. That is the ultimate blasphemy. Now, isn't that amazing that Satan could tie those people up into such an inextricable snare that there's no way out except by revelation from Jesus Christ himself? Right? That's why you won't get, you'll find Muslims the hardest nuts to crack because they just will not give up because it's, it's the most ultimate sin to turn to Christianity. So even though they acknowledge him as a prophet, they do not acknowledge him as the Son of God. They believe God is a solo God, no Holy Spirit, no Son. So they're, they're really encased in that doctrine. 
So we've got all these groups, and it's going to be uh, increasingly, and, th and then, then there's people on the internet that just get on my, these, those videos that I've got up there. If you go to them, you'll see some people that have left comments, you know, months ago and stuff, and it's all um, Jesus is not God comments. And I leave them up there because I like Christians coming on and going, hang on, <laughs> you know, get stuck into this guy, and hopefully one of them might convert on one day. But these guys aren't Christian Delphians. They're not Jehovah Witnesses. They're not Muslims. They're not any of these groups. They just don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they've, they've turned away from that. And they call the, the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, an abominable doctrine, things like this. Why? Because the, the word Trinity doesn't get mentioned in Scripture. You know, eschatology is not mentioned in Scripture. But it's, it's a doctrine. It's a name of a, a, a doctrinal concept. Isn't it? That's all it is. It doesn't have to be in Scripture, you know, to be, to be a valid doctrine. So, anyway, I won't go any further with that because I'll get distracted. But it, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. John 3.16. We all know John 3.16. He's the only begotten Son of God. Begotten is an, is an important word because we, are we sons of God? Are we sons and daughters of God? Yeah, are we begotten? No. We don't come out of, for lack of a better word, the womb of God. Not that God had a womb and didn't need a womb, you know, to, you know, frogs don't need a womb to make little frogs, you know, that's just that's, that's one way of procreating. But whatever the case is, Christ, if you think of it, Christ came out of God. And if you if you think from this perspective, if they were, if God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were in eternity past, and that means way before anything was created, so before what the scientists call the Big Bang, before the time when everything began, before the inception of material physical matter, before that point, the universe knew only God. And that was eternally eternally now how if god was a solo god would he have trouble realizing he exists absolutely if you if you you know people go mad when they're put on a stranded on a desert island by themselves they go mad because they just don't they get to the point where their reality is so you know, uh, twisted because they've got nothing to reflect into. Who's seen the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? And he talks to a coconut. No, no, sorry, soccer ball. Soccer ball. It looked like a coconut in the end, but it was a soccer ball. Soccer ball. Right? But um, you go mad. Not to say God would go mad, but what I'm saying is God, God had to have another person to have a relationship with. God is a God of relationship. That's why it's not because he had creation, he fell in love with creation. That's not why God is a God of love. God always loved in eternity past. Now, if he was solo by himself, could he love? You think about it. You're just by yourself. You don't, there was, there'll be no need for the concept of love because you're by yourself. You just, I love myself. What's love? no idea. You know, I'm by myself. But if you've got someone there, 
you know, you can love them. And that's why God was always a God of love. In eternity past, he loved the Holy Spirit. He loved Jesus and Jesus loved the Father and the Holy Spirit loved the Father. And there was a relationship, a relational existence. Out of that love, out of that love, they created. That's what caused the creation. A love of life, a love of existence, a love to see things created with love and then those things and, and if you think about it it's only those that love the father that are going to get saved and that's that's the thing it's all about love it's about love is great the greatest of all all things you know if 1 corinthians 13 love is patient love is kind etc you know it's all about love so they created and 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 the creatures that they created were created to love each other. And then the fall occurred, didn't it? After the fall, things got out of, out of whack. And that's when, you know, uh, murder got into the world and a whole range of things come into the world. And that's the opposite of love. That's hatred. So, are we begotten of God? No, but we're born again into God. We're born again. We're begotten of our parents. But my, my dad gave me, oh, sorry, my mum and dad. My mum gave me birth. My mum and dad gave me birth, right? So I'm begotten of my parents. I'm not begotten of God, but I can be adopted or grafted into God, can't I? So we are adopted, Ephesians 1.5 and Galatians 4.5. Um, I may as well just quickly read it just for the sake of you seeing it. That we are, the word adoption is in scripture. Ephesians 1 5. And I'm go back, see how it says he predestined? Does it say he predestined? Go back two words and it says in love. In love. So it confirms what I was saying before about God being love and creating out of love. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Okay? In love, in love, he predestined us to be adopted, to be adopted into the kingdom of, into, uh, adopted in sons through Jesus Christ as his son. So we become sons and always sons with a little s. Jesus is the son of God with a capital, an uppercase s. You've got to keep that in perspective. Now go back one book. Ephesians comes after the book of Galatians. So go back to Galatians. Just a couple of pages backwards. And it says in 4.5, and go back to verse 4, <laughs> just to get the start of the sentence. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive full rights as sons. Now, other versions say that we'd be adopted. My version, I didn't actually check this in, in this Bible today because I was reading it in the Amplified, but it says, but we might receive full rights of sons. So get this. When you get into the kingdom of God, you have rights. Actually, let me rephrase that. Even now in the Spirit, because you, if you truly possess the Holy Spirit, you have rights as many rights as Jesus Christ had when he walked on earth. 
He even said, even greater things than these you shall do. Right? So at, we have rights. We, have, we actually, as Christians, we're living in a spiritual realm, aren't we? We're living in this spiritual realm. It says we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. Now, you know, you have authority to police the heavenly realms. Every last one of us has the authority to police the heavenly realms by faith. And most of us don't realize that we have that authority because we, and we usually take on the battle in the flesh. That's what happens a lot of the time. But we do have authority in the heavenly realms and as much authority as Jesus Christ himself had. Now, Jesus is the Son of God is the next one. He used that title to clearly reveal his God nature by identifying himself as God. Yeah, what I mean by that is, and I've said this in other videos, is why do you think Jesus called himself the Son of God? I'm asking you so you can think a minute before I say it. To show the relationship, right? Now, we're, I'm a son of, a, of my dad. My dad's name's Graham, so I'm the son of Graham. And I'm human as he is, right? Jesus says, I'm the son of God. He's as God as God is. And that's the only reason he used that term, terminology. He wanted people to actually understand that. And the Pharisees knew what he was talking about. The Pharisees wanted to stone him for claiming, because they said, you, a mere man, claim to be God. right? So they knew exactly what he meant when he said, I'm the son of God. And actually, the official reason he was crucified was because he claimed to be God. So they put him on a cross. And so Christadelphians have to ask themselves, and Jehovah Witnesses and um, I wouldn't say Muslims because they're not concerned with this at all. It's the, those groups that claim to be Christian and deny the deity of Christ, they're, they're getting in line with the Pharisees and accusing him of the same blasphemy. Or they're trying to say that Scripture just does not say that. So, but it, clearly Jesus is identifying himself with the Father by saying, I'm his son. You know? If I came to you and said, Jesus is not the Son of God, I am the Son of God, you would know what I mean, wouldn't you? You would know I'm claiming to be God now. I'm not doing that. Unless someone just cuts that little bit out. Look what Rob Cartridge said. Jesus is not the Son of God, I am the Son of God. No, I didn't really say that. Now many claim that Jesus is not God but the Son of God, but we should even change that to a small s because they claim that he is just the Son of God, a creation. Right? The Jehovah Witnesses claim that he's the archangel Michael. So he's not God, he's an angel, he's a created being. And they also claim that he is subject to the Father, which is true, he is subject to the Father. And if he is subject to the Father, then he's not God with all the authority of God. Because if he claims to be the son, then the father is greater than him, then he can't be God, because how can God be greater than himself? Because they also don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe that God is threefold with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is the head of the Trinity. All right? And that's why I'm going to be reading these scriptures with you. So if you can turn in your Amplified Bibles or find your Amplified Bibles on your phones. Hebrews chapter 1. Yeah, in many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth, that's in brackets, 
And in different ways, God spoke of old to our forefathers in and by the prophets. But in the last of these days, he has spoken to us in the person of a son, whom he appointed heir. So what has God the Father done? Now, God the Father's the head, but he appointed him heir and lawful owner of all things. What does your version there say, Andy? Yes, through whom he also made the world. And, and this just adds a lawful owner of all things. So God the Father is the head. Jesus has no problem with that. But Jesus has been appointed owner of all things. So it's like the equivalent, if you think of it from the son, you know, you've got the father and the son, the father starts a company, he's got this big, you know, company doing really, really well, and it's called, you know, Murphy and Sons. And the son, he's got one, or Murphy and Son, because he's got one son, right? And the son has been given the company. And the father still, in a sense, um, well, the father doesn't even own it. He just says, you have it, because that's what it says. He's been appointed heir and owner of all things. So the father now retires, but the son never forgets the fact that the father started this thing off. That the father is the reason for it all. But the son runs the show. You know? And that's what we've got in Jesus Christ. Because there's, 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 uh, God is one, and there's three but one, but they're not all equal in the sense of um, God the Father is clearly, Jesus makes it out very clearly, he's the head. He's the head. He's the top. And Jesus has no problem submitting to the Father. And Jesus was tested as a physical human, and found sinless. And Jesus says, this day I've become your father. As the physical person of Jesus, you've also passed the test, physical Jesus. And now I can, even in your physical flesh, I can say, now you've become my son. Today I've become your father. Not to say he wasn't always his father, but that physical portion of Jesus. When Jesus placed the physical nature on himself because he's God and he put a physical nature. Now, God, that was one thing that God didn't have before Jesus Christ came on earth was God didn't have a physical nature. But then with Jesus Christ, now God has a physical nature. And then he had to prove his worthiness under the restraints of the flesh and be declared son. And that's why God said even at that point, so when they say, well, how come he was declared a son you know, on earth if he's always been his son? Well, that's the exact reason why. You know? So Ephesians 1, 1 to 3, But in these last days he has spoken to us in the person of a son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, also by and through whom he created the world. So who's he saying? Jesus, through whom he created the world and the reaches of space. And the ages of time, I love that, I love the wording of the Amplified. He created the ages of time. So what the Amplified just did was that the Greek word used at this point that was when it talked about worlds, it, it, was, not, it was more than just worlds. He created the worlds, the reaches of space and the ages of time. It's like the word, I think it's cos, cosmos or something. 
And that's what, when you understand the word for the fullness of what it means, that's what it sort of signifies. He made, produced, built, operated, and arranged them in order. He's the sole expression of the glory of God. How's that? What's yours there, Sabel? Oh, okay. Here's the sole expression. What's Vina? In, in the NIV? Oh, you're reading the Amplified, aren't you? All right. Isn't it say he's the image of the invisible God? No? No? There it is. The, that's the word I was thinking of. He's the exact representation of his being. Gee, does that tell you he's God? He's the exact, exact prototokos, exact representation of his being. I, I don't know how you could ever deny Jesus is God and, and read this Bible. Expression of the glory of God, the light being, the outraying of, or radiance of the divine. This is what the Amplified, as it goes deeper into a word study of the words used in Greek there. And he is the perfect imprint. That's prototokos, like prototype. Like a, um, it's the equivalent of like a photocopy. He's like a, um, but it's not a photocopy. That's a, a bad word, analogy for it. But he's the exact image of God. Like when you see Jesus, you see God. That's why he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the exact, exact, not sort of, exact. Down to every stroke of Jesus Christ's makeup is God. And the very image of God's nature, upholding and maintaining and guiding, propelling the universe by his mighty word of power. Well, now does that say something about Jesus? Listen to what Jesus does. He upholds the universe. He upholds the universe. That means things stay in orbit because of the power of Jesus Christ. That's why my... My PowerPoint thing is not adequate analogy and, and God the Father being the big power plant, Jesus is the power plant. That's not a, a, an adequate because Jesus is the power plant as much as the Father is. But upholding and maintaining and guiding, so he upholds it, he maintains it, he keeps it there, he maintains everything. Nothing happens in the universe at any of the reaches of the universe without Jesus knowing. Every little thing. If a comet's going to smash into a planet, Jesus knows about it. And if he doesn't want it to smash into a planet, he diverts it. That's the power of Jesus Christ. That's the man from Nazareth. That's Jesus who got on the cross. That's the power of that man. Do we see him for who he is? He's more than just a mild-mannered, good-natured man that we can identify with. How can a person in a physical body uphold the whole universe? So what sort of a man was this? When he walked, this is the kind of man he is, he walked into villages and everyone who was sick and diseased and lame and etc., Everyone, the blind, the deaf, that everyone who came near him were healed. And the, the Samaritan woman just touched the fringe of his garment. And her faith was just, if I could just touch him, I'll be healed. I know I will because I've seen what he can do. I've heard the reports. This man is God in the flesh. This is God walking. 
You know, that's a powerful God. He didn't ride on horseback and, and rally the Middle East to war. He didn't do that. You know, he's not one of 330 million gods and equal with a cow on the street like Hinduism teaches. He's not that. He's God in the flesh. Power beyond our comprehension. And unless you see that, unless the Spirit convicts you that this is the man that we worship, this is the man that is why we gather, I really believe there could be salvational issues at stake because the Holy Spirit has to reveal this. Because we can't see it in the Word. Or, or when you see it, you won't believe it. You'll look at it and go, no, 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 Jesus can't be God. No, 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 that's not no, God. God it says God is one. Jesus can't be God. That doesn't say that. And, and who's that the spirit of? That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist will come and try to tell you that Jesus is not God. Try to defame God. So when you meet someone like a Christadelphian, don't assume they're saved because they claim a belief in Jesus Christ. It's a, they, they don't believe in the Jesus Christ we believe in. They believe in a created Jesus they believe in, like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in, the Archangel Michael is Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus, the Son of God, as God as God is. They don't believe in that God, that Jesus. Very different Jesus. You know, even the New Age, they believe in Jesus. But he's not our Jesus. You know, you could get ten people in the room. One of them's Jesus and there's nine others called Jesus. Which one's Jesus. They're not all Jesus just because they're called Jesus. Just because someone says, I worship Jesus, doesn't mean they worship the Son of God. Amen? Yeah, this is, this is really important. This is why I'm, I'm passionate about it and why I teach on it every now and then. is because I think salvation is at stake. You know, there's a, a boy that I spoke to on the weekend and his, his dad was a Christadelphian and he passed away with cancer. And I thought, when he told me, he was, I thought he was Christian like us. And then I heard he's a Christadelphian. I went, oh, no, was he Christadelphian? Oh, man. It broke my heart. Because now, now uh, you know, I, I'm not, I can't say, and, and, and say, yeah, he's saved. I couldn't say that. He didn't ask me that anyway. But no, and I'm glad he didn't ask me that. Because I'm, I'm one, I, I don't like lying to people. Oh, don't worry, your dad's going to be in heaven. You know, I hate going to funerals of atheists. Who hates going to an atheist funeral? Yeah, been to a few lately. When I say a few, the people were not believers. And then, and I don't know what it is with me, but people see me and they, they sort of go, hey, Rob. He's in, he's in a better place, isn't he, Rob? He's in a better place. And they want me to say, yeah, yeah, he's in a better place. They want me to say that. And I go, I just go, oh, I hope, let's hope so. You know, I, I, can't, I can't say for sure, and I, I, I want to. But there's been some people like Nota that passed away, and she was a born-again Christian, a passionate woman of God. And when people come up and said, she's in heaven, I go, oh, Absolutely. Jesus himself would have been the first one greeting him, not Abraham. <laughs> you know, wouldn't have, angels wouldn't have taken her up to heaven. Jesus would have said, I'll, I'll do this out the way. If that's the way it happens, I'm just making that up, sorry. 
we, no one knows what happens at that point, do we? Absent from the body's present with the Lord, it just could be a transition like with this there, transported rapidly. I know the, the, the tribulation, uh, the rapture, the post-trib rapture, which is what I believe anyway, in the post-trib rapture, it says angels pick up and rapture the humans. And it clearly says angels do the rapturing. So in that case, we can say, yes, there's angels rapturing, but in any other case. Um, so let's go to he- Ephesians 1.20. Is anyone receiving this today? Do they, you, you see what I'm sort of getting to? I think it's important. Ephesians 1.20. So guys, when you speak with Christian Dolphins in the future, and when you speak with a Jehovah Witness, you've got to go to these scriptures. You've got to go to Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3. Go to Hebrews and say, who is this talking about here? And then clearly point out, it's Jesus. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. And what does it say about Jesus Christ? These things. And then if that's not enough, well, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians. So it says 1 Corinthians 15. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. I think it's 15 verse 13 or something. Um, but it clearly points out Jesus. No, not 1 Corinthians. Uh, sorry, Colossians 1 verse 15. That's the other scripture that declares Jesus as God. But Ephesians 1.20, is everyone there? Ephesians 1.20, and it says, yep, which he exerted in Christ... This is God the Father. He exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And where did he seat Jesus? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named above every title that can be conferred, not only in this age and in this world, but also in the age and the world which are to come. So Jesus Christ has been set up as by God, the Father who is head, but he's given everything to Jesus and he's placed him above everything. He is uh, outside of God. It's the equivalent of Joseph in Egypt and Pharaoh said, outside of me, you're the greatest in Egypt. You know, everyone, anything that happens in Egypt has got to go through you. And Pharaoh basically took a back seat and said, go for it, Joseph, you're the man for the job. Do it all. You're my CEO, in a sense. You know, you run the show now. I'm just going to take a back seat. You can imagine Pharaoh with Joseph in charge. Pharaoh would have just sat back and had a real leisurable few years after that. I don't even have to worry about food. It's all covered. You know, in the famine ahead, we're going to be fine. Because Joseph's in charge. And that's how God feels. Go for it, Jesus. I give you it all. Every piece of matter, every spiritual creature, everything, you're above them all, you're in charge. You know, we've got to understand this because now we get a, we're starting to get an understanding of who Jesus is. He's, he's the most powerful existence in the universe. And verse 22, he, put, he has put all things under his feet and has appointed him the universal and supreme head of the church. So all these powers and authorities and dominions, and then, then we close down. What's the most important thing to Jesus on, the, on earth? The church. It's what it's all about. It's all about the church. It's all about this little gathering of people and other gatherings of people. It's about that. And Jesus is the supreme head of 
all of that of the church the headship exercised throughout the church and that church which is his body which is his body the fullness of him get that guys do you know what we're supposed to be the fullness of Jesus Christ where the church the fullness of Jesus Christ why do you think there's such a call in this church to holiness living a righteous life because we are supposed to be the fullness of Christ in all his glory that's what we're supposed to represent and people who walk in here should be having an experience with Jesus Christ in this place because we are filled with the Spirit overflowing with the Spirit the fullness of him so verse 23 which is his body the fullness of him, of him who fills all in all for in that body lives the full measure of him who makes everything complete and who fills everything everywhere with himself isn't that amazing now I want to just quickly move forward because I want to get through um, 1 Corinthians and to Revelation so let's turn to 1 Corinthians as we know Jesus has given, been given all authority. Amen. He's the head of the church. He holds the universe together. He's above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. 15, 24, and it says, all right, so this is, um, again, I'm going to take you back to 23 but each in his own rank and turn. Christ the Messiah is the first fruits. Uh, then those who are Christ's own will be resurrected at his coming. So at the second coming, uh, we will be resurrected if we're passed away or will be raptured if we haven't passed away, if we're still alive at his coming. After that comes the end, the completion, when he delivers over the kingdom to God the Father after rendering inoperative and abolishing every other rule and authority and power. So what happens? And it happens to be, according to Revelation, which we're going to read, after a thousand-year reign, he's going to, at that time, render inoperative and abolish every other rule and every authority and power. And at that time, he's going to hand it back to God as the supreme head. Verse 25, for Christ must be king and reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be subdued and abolished is death. All right? Now this is confirmed in Re Revelation. For he, the Father, has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection under him, it is evident that he himself is accepted. It's, just, it's like Pharaoh with Joseph. Joseph uh, Pharaoh said, um, you have, you, to everyone else you are Pharaoh, but except to me, I'm greater than you. Now, I'm higher in rank. You know, So that's the, the um, topology. It's evident that he himself is accepted who does the subjecting of all things to him. So how can... Because God subjects everything to Christ. It says, here, it's all under you. I place you above it all. And then Christ is placed in that 
position of rule. But then after this time, when all his enemies are under his feet and everything is finished, then Christ goes, here you go. And you know what he's handing back, and I haven't got time to go into this, is he's handing back a purified creation, completed, done. Everyone's holy, everyone's righteous, everyone loves God, all the evil, all those that hate God are gone. There's no more of them. We don't want to be in that crowd, do we? That's a huge crowd. That's a huge crowd. It says, what, what does it say about after the thousand-year reign of Christ? What happens at the end of that thousand years? There's a big war. So they get peace. They get the coveted peace on the planet. One thousand years, Jesus is reigning. We've got the best life you could possibly get. Satan's released from the pit for a short time. He rallies a massive crowd from Gog and Magog, and they come in and they attack the city of God, which is Jerusalem. Once again, they come back and want to take it out. Idiots. <laughs> like, come on, man. Haven't you seen God's on the planet? Don't you see his power and his authority and his rule? Haven't you seen what he's done? And now they're going to come and attack him. And what does God do? Jesus, don't even get on your horse. Don't, let, don't even bother having a sword come out of your mouth. Just let me do this one. And so God just goes, fire from heaven. And that's it. They're all gone. That's it. No more enemies. Finished, complete. And what happens? At that point, we're going to read. So let's go to Revelation 2014. You know what, I always, what I've prayed for years is, Lord, don't ever let me, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, get deceived by Satan at that time. Don't ever let any of us here, Lord, lose our faith in that thousand years and get deceived by Satan at the end of the thousand years because that's going to be the next big test after this one's finished is when you have the coveted peace, what's going to happen to the love of God? What's going to happen to our love for God when the thousand years of peace reigns? Are we going to, you know, Jesus is going to say something one day and we're going to go, I don't like what he said. I don't like how he put that. Jesus just offended me. Are we going to let that happen? That's a valid question. Amen. Don't you think? Because it's going to be a thousand years and, that, and, and, and judgment takes place after that. So don't let your faith lo lose passion even during that time. And I'm saying this in prophetical sense. Don't let, it get, let yourself get hardened to Christ even during that time. Because it's very easy. Peace brings about that kind of thing. A thousand years of peace and you know, if we start to let something... Cause Jesus is going to rule with an iron scepter. He's going to be a tough cookie. He's not going to put up with much. He's going to, but it's going to be peace. He's, remember, he's God. He doesn't put up with rubbish. And he's strong, authoritative. You know, and he put a lot of people's noses out of joint when he was on earth. He put a lot of people's noses out of joint. Why else do you think he got crucified? Because these people got offended by Christ. Because he spoke the truth, double-edged sword, hurts, cuts both ways. And just remember that. Because during that time, 
you're going to want to stay the course and you've got to stay humble and repentant. And if Jesus says something, his word is above every word. Just, yep, that's for me. I take it. I take it. Lord, let it hurt me and let me get over it and let me become a better Christian as a result so that I can look at my Lord and he can look at me with love in his eyes. Not like a father that's disappointed with his son, but a father that loves us. You know what I mean? So I just thought I'd do it because I always pray, Lord, don't ever let my heart get hardened at that time because we're going to be there with him, aren't we? Right? Don't get hardened. And I'll, I'll preach it to you anyway. I'll be preaching this for a thousand years if I have to. <laughs> Hopefully there'll be a few more people then. Hoping for a bigger church during the millennium. <laughs> All right, so Revelation 21, 1 to 7. Hang on, let's go to 2014, yeah. And remember it said the last enemy to be destroyed or conquered is death. All right, and it says in Revelation uh, 20, verse 14, then death and Hades, and it says in brackets here, the state of death or disembodied existence were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse, oh, chapter 21, And then I saw a new sky, or a new heaven, and a new earth. For the former sky and the former earth had passed away, had vanished. And remember that um, Peter talks about it being destroyed by fire, purified by fire. Everything on earth will be burned up. And there was no longer, there no longer existed any sea. I'm so glad about that. There will still be waves, there will still be waves, but just no sharks. <laughs> yes, that's when I'm coming surfing with you, Andy. As long as there's no sharks out there, I'll be out there. Dolphins, they can be out there. I'll surf the dolphin. All right, and verse 2, and it says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Get this, guys. This is after a thousand years. So just make sure you stay the thousand years because then you're going to see the most incredible thing. And I did a sermon on this, the first coming of the Father. And, and Elizabeth said to me the other day, she goes, you know what, I've never heard anyone ever preach about the first coming of the Father. And I go, you know what, I've never heard anyone. I'm sure there is. So I'm sure I'm not the first. But I hadn't really ever heard anyone preach on the first coming of the Father. We always hear about the second coming. Actually, that's less and less these days than ever. But I thought I'd go one better. Well, what about the first coming of the Father? You know, after the thousand years. Because that's when you know everything is completed. And the creation has been perfected. Now the Father can come. We're in our imperishable bodies so we can look upon the face of God and live. And we're ready for this glorious time. And I saw the holy city, verse 2, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, all arrayed like a bride, beautified and adorned for her husband. Then I heard a mighty voice from the throne, and I perceived its distinct words, saying, See, the abode of God is with men. The abode of God is with men, and he will live and encamp and tent among them, and they shall be his people, and God shall personally be with them and be their God. Now that's after the thousand-year reign of Christ, and it's not referring that just because it says, and God himself personally will be with men, it's not saying Jesus isn't God. All that's saying is that the Father, the one, remember in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says Jesus hands it all back to him. 
after everything is completed. And now the father can come to his possession. And he'll say, thanks, son. You've done a great job. Look at this. A glorified people. A people that love me. They've been tested with persecution and trouble and hardship. And they've been tested with peace. That's interesting. That just came to me then. We get tested in this life. Trouble, hardship, persecution, sickness, ill health, etc. Oh, we're going to stay faithful. And then the greatest test of all, a thousand years of peace. A thousand years of peace. No sickness, no ill health. A full bellies all the time and we don't get fat. All that sort of thing. You know, everything is great. There's no reason to be upset. Peaceful, beautiful life. I believe the greatest test of all because it says that when Satan gets released from the pit, the greatest rally, like they said, like in number they were like sand on the seashore. How many people are that? How many people come against God at that time? If sand on a seashore, if you went down to the seashore, right, and just say it's just a small beach, just, you know, a bit of sand near the Glenelg jetty, Measure it out, 100 metres to the left, 100 metres that way, and how many is that way? And the sand is how deep? Just say it's only a foot deep. Now you grabbed every grain of that 100 square metres, a foot deep, you grab every grain and then go zap, it's a person, zap, that's a person, zap, that's a person, zap, that's a person. How many people are going to raise up out of that sand? In number they were like sand on the seashore. He used that word, those words to indicate a lot of people will rise up against Jesus. The greatest test will be that thousand years of peace. Are we going to make sure that we don't fall during that time? We've got to make sure. So we've got to set our hearts, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. doesn't matter whether you got it all or whether you're going through the worst time possible, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Amen? The testing time now, persecution, trouble, hardship, the testing time then, peace. Everything good. The complete opposite, the opposite end of the spectrum. God wants a purified bride. That's why he wants a holy people. He wants a people that he knows he can trust and count on for all eternity that have been tested in every extreme and have their creational state has been purified. My, my opinion is that we had the six days of creation and then God created man and then Adam fell and then we were, uh, and it was all in the, God knew it was going to happen, it's nothing surprises God. And then it's been 6,000 years and every human who turns to God gets perfected as a creation. So the creation is not finished. Creation has not finished yet until the seventh day is complete. Because God rested in the seventh day and that seventh day is not completed until God the Father comes so the creation has never been finished we're incomplete creation and we can all testify to that actually a lot of atheists use that as the reason why God doesn't exist because he says well he could have done a better job because why are we so fallible why do we you know do the things we do why, if, that, if God is so perfect why didn't he just make us all perfect well, he is making us perfect, but it's part, this is part of the process of making us perfect. It's necessary to 
become to the fullness of who we are as a creation. And that's why when, you're, when it's completed, you receive your imperishable body and all your emotional states and your morals and, and everything inside you has been sorted out and is now set like flint to Jesus Christ, towards Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? You know, because how do you, you can't create that. Experience creates that. You can't create those sorts of characteristics of holiness in a person. It can't just be a click of the fingers by God. It's got to be worked into them through the use of time. Yeah. So who's seeing this? Yeah, I think I had a, a point with this. Sermon, so I hope it's been a blessing. I'll, I'll just see if I haven't left out one thing. I hate leaving out something. And, and it says in verse 4 of Revelation 21, and it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be anguish, sorrow, or mourning, nor grief, nor pain anymore, for the old conditions and the former order of things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, See, I make all things new. And he said, record this, for these sayings are faithful, accurate, incorruptible, and trustworthy, and true, and genuine. And he further said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I myself will give water without price from the fountain, the springs of the water of life. And he who is victorious shall inherit all these things. He who is victorious will inherit it. You must complete it. You inherit it when you're victorious. You know, too much teaching says you, you know, you put up your hand, you're saved. Put up your hand, you're saved as well. Uh, anyone else put up their hand? Oh, you're saved. Oh, eh, did you put your hand up? Yeah. Oh, he did. Yep, you're saved as well. You know what I mean? Oh, you didn't put your hand up. You're not saved. You know, is that how we count salvation? Or do we lead them and disciple them and encourage them until they run the race. You know, that's salvation. That's why we're called to disciples. We're not called to point our finger at people with their hands raised and say, you're saved. We're called to disciple them, get alongside of them and make sure they get saved. You know, that's, that's salvation. It's in the scriptures. He who is victorious shall inherit all these things. And I will be God to him and he shall be my son, lowercase s. And, and, that's, and that's after the thousand year reign of peace. That's after that. So we've got a little way to go yet, guys. We've got to get through this life the troublesome life, then the next life, the peaceful life, because when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. You know? And blessed are they that have died in Christ because um, they, they can't die a second time. So there's some comfort in that. So that's why I believe that many, many Christians in the last days will put their hand up to have their heads cut off because they'll be blessed to be part of the first death. And when I said that as in that's how the official way you die in the book of Revelation is by beheading. 
because you know you can go into the thousand year reign with your imperishable body that means you're more than likely not going to reject Christ but those that aren't in that state they go through um, they they're the ones that are going to get challenged they're the ones that are going to rise up at the end and another key point hang around hang around the temple just hang around there all the time don't leave the temple stay in the temple <laughs> just Jesus will say, why don't you go home? No, I'm staying here for a thousand years. All right, thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just give you praise and glory and honour and thanks. Uh, thank you for the word, Lord. I never knew it was going to have so many revelations, and I, I just praise you for that and thank you And uh, because we know that the Spirit of God is certainly speaking to us this morning. And, Lord, I just pray that you help us in this time of trouble, these, this life of trouble, hardship, and suffering help us to endure help us to hold to the course help us to stay strong in you and not lose our uh, faith in any way keep up keep us each of us encouraging one another